Surprise! Bonus episode. Welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast with Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. I'm so excited to be hosting this bonus episode today. Um, I've been trying to put together an episode about men with eating disorders for a long time. And um, as you can probably guess from the lack of men on the show, there are not a lot of men who work in the field of eating disorders. And most of us who work in the field have a lot of female clients, like primarily female clients. And that's really um, kind of sad because we do know that about one third, and that's just an estimate um, of, of people with eating disorders are men. And that's according to the National Eating Disorders Association. So anyway, I am very excited today to welcome Brian Pollack. He is a licensed clinical social worker who is also one of the um, owners and founders of Hilltop Behavioral Health in New Jersey. He focuses on men who have eating disorders, and he's done a lot of outreach in recent years, including um, you know many different speaking engagements, and he's recently launched a television show to talk about mental illness in men. So um, I'm really excited. I think you're going to enjoy the show. We had a really great conversation. But first, don't worry, we do have an article of the week. And it's going to take us a little more in depth from something he will talk about. So I just wanted you to have that information ahead of time. So the article is in Science Daily. It's a research article from 2018. And it talks about weight cycling. So The title is, Weight Cycling is Associated with a Higher Risk of Death Study Finds. Weight cycling, or the constant losing and gaining of weight, usually from diet, leads to adverse health outcomes. By some estimates, 80% of people who lose weight will gradually regain it to end up at the same weight or even heavier than they were before they went on a diet. The Endocrine Society's scientific statement on the causes of obesity found this was because once an individual loses weight, the body typically reduces the amount of energy expended at rest during exercise and daily activities while increasing hunger. This combination of lower energy expenditure and hunger creates a perfect metabolic storm of conditions for weight gain. This study shows that weight cycling can heighten a person's risk of death, said lead study author Hak C. Jang. Basically, the study goes into depth about how when you're you know, losing and gaining and losing and gaining weight over and over again during your life, which is very common for anyone who is a chronic dieter or a lot of men who kind of do these crash diets to look good for a particular event or at the beginning of the new year are actually causing more damage to their bodies than if they just maintained their slightly elevated weight um, or just their healthy body weight where their body naturally sits. So um, I think it's a really interesting article to look at and um, definitely plays into why just maintaining a healthier relationship with your food and body is better for you overall than trying to be at that whatever BMI is recommended for you. One last reminder before we start the episode with Brian is that next week is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week. And as I said last week, I am doing a special series. There will be an episode every single day um, during NIDA week. And 
I want to feature you. I want to feature your stories. I want to feature your experiences with eating disorders. I am having five guests, but I also will be sharing many stories from listeners. So if you're interested, please email me at worth, W-E-R-T-H, your wild nutrition at gmail.com. Send me your stories. I'm happy to keep you anonymous. I would just love to share you know, what you've been through or what you've experienced or what you've seen or what you've learned. Um, And so everyone doesn't feel quite as alone in their struggle. So without any further ado, here is Brian Pollack on eating disorders in men. Hello, this is Brian. Hi, Brian. This is Julia. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. Um, but yeah, so I just want to start with, how did you first get introduced to the field of eating disorders and end up working in the field? You know, I, it's a long story, but to make it brief, I didn't realize I was interested in the field of eating disorders as I was living in a world of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. I think the beginning of, well, right out of college, I used to sing act and dance for a living. And I took ballet, jazz, tap. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a, in a community of people that were extremely focused on looking, presenting, and feeling a certain way around their body. Yeah. In order, in order to excel. And the pressures and the community at large and how people were expected to perform literally mm-hmm. as well as communicate and be in that profession uh, was kind of ingrained in me for nearly 10 years. And so I was around it. And when I left the theater, um, I actually had done a Broadway show and decided uh, this wasn't for me anymore. I kind of went on a bit of a a journey, per se, of trying to figure out who am I and what do I want to do. Yeah, And that's just you know, and that took some time. But once I figured it out, I started studying mindfulness at a yoga studio. Um, I was helping run a yoga studio. I started working with the severely disabled. And it started snowballing into that over and over again. Ended up going to graduate school at NYU. And my first job out of school was to work at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. They mm-hmm. have an inpatient, partial, and IOP eating disorder program. Okay. I started there for four years. Um, learned everything I could. I became certified as an eating disorder specialist. I fell in love with the work. There was real progress and change, and it was just real wonderful passion with people wanting to get better. They were all in real acute crisis points. And it kind of went from there and just became part of who I am. It just yeah. kind of blended easily. And I mean, it's all I read about now. It's all yeah. I talk about. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, same. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of everything every day. It's, it's really wonderful stuff. Yeah. So you're a licensed clinical social worker, correct? That's correct. So what does your work with eating disorders look like now? So currently, it's on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my own practice, group practice, and I'm called Hilltop Behavioral Health in Summit, New Jersey. 
And we have, there's three of us currently, two psychologists and myself, all focusing on eating disorders mm-hmm. and also trauma. Particularly, one of our psychologists has uh, been working at the VA for 18 years. So he's oh, seen wow. every complex, yeah. yeah, every complex trauma you can imagine. Um, so we do that. We're starting groups. I'm actually excited because I'm really going to be offering a group for young adolescent males. Oh, awesome. Um, in, yeah, in the next month and a half. So that's starting to formulate. We're about to also start a group, uh, an embodiment group with um, possibly Jennifer Priatsalis, uh, who owns a company called Yoga for Eating Disorders out of Pennsylvania. And she's amazing and wonderful. And she'll kind of be a visiting adjunct therapist support as we look at the developmental theory of embodiment, which is the connection of body and body. And also, um, I do a lot of advocacy work. I was on the board of the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders. Mm-hmm. We did a lot a lot of work nationally, and I would present, I presented at Princeton Hospital, Princeton University, the International Association for Eating Disorder Professionals. Um, and, and even more so, even more exciting, um, I just got my own TV show. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like nothing funny and crazy. It sounds fancy, but it's actually not so fancy. It's um, through a public access cable network. Uh-huh. Those from the old days. Um, I do, so yeah. It, yeah. And so that's actually going to be a focus on men and mental health. And uh-huh. we'll be inviting professionals and eating disorder professionals and trauma professionals and marriage professionals and people who have recovered and survivors of complex trauma who are male, things like that, to just start to open a conversation that, you know, we could watch on TV versus... Um, read constantly because sometimes we need that interactive. Right, definitely. So you've hinted at this a lot, but one reason I really wanted to have you on the show is because the eating disorder field is so dominated by women in working and it's often seen as like women are the primary um, people who have eating disorders. So I really wanted to dedicate some time to talking about, you know, what does it look like for men and what's the reality for men when it comes to eating disorders? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm really glad you pointed that out because that is one of the biggest problems that we're facing uh-huh. is there's a whole diversity of people who have eating disorder. Um, men are just one part of it, which we'll talk about mainly today, but there is no doubt people of color, there are people who are marginalized, there are lower socioeconomic status people, no matter their color, there are um, all kinds of different cultural aspects that are starting to show up. Mm-hmm. You can't ignore them. Yeah, yeah. And it's not it's not just the stereotypical, you know, young, um, like affluent white girl who has an eating disorder. Exactly. Right. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, how many men are diagnosed with eating disorders and if there's a type of eating disorder that's most commonly seen in, in men? Yeah. Um, so... Regarding men, we actually, I think, get the numbers wrong. Mm-hmm. A lot of different places will state 25% or even less of people who have an eating disorder are male. And that's actually wrong. Um, I think it's 
than the research shows. It's actually more like 25 to 40 percent, and I truly believe it's higher towards the 40, maybe even 45 percent. These are only reported cases mm-hmm. of people, and this only allows us to be able to collect data of people who are willing to talk about the difficult Right. And when you when you think about, let's say, for rough numbers, 10 million people um, have an eating disorder, I mean, that's quite a lot of people that it's about 40 to, let's say, 45%. Um, now, the rough data, again, is about 25 to 40, but I do think it's higher. And so, so when you say the data, like, where is the data coming from? Well, the data is coming from researchers in the field coming mm-hmm. out of UCSD. Uh, there's a gentleman named Stuart Murray who's doing a ton of work, Tiffany Brown, um, Gerald Kalsel, as well as the National Eating Disorders Association right. now has partnered and taken over really the work of the National Association for Males. So there is now a concerted effort to start to push this in a new light and get people to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I remember but, when I was in school, they would say things like, you know, only 10% of eating disorders are, are male. Super scary. Yeah. And, and, we can, and we can kind of look at why. So if you look at why we, number one, don't see as much. Um, one thing is, of course, the hyper-focus on white females. Mm-hmm. of a certain socioeconomic class, which very much became a stereotype and, and unfortunately can do a lot of damage to the community at large. There's also the idea that men are much more hesitant to go to the doctor. Right. They're also much more hesitant to recognize that they are emotionally feeling something and they will talk about it. There is an element at play here sociologically that men struggle with a mystique or a what we would call a masculine mystique, or even as some of the catchphrases lately have been like toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. um, or even the word misogyny. The idea that men have to be powerful, successful, in control, they cannot look weak or creative or emotional because those different things will compromise their sense of power and masculinity mm-hmm. and the fear of kind of being self-conscious and what that could create for a lot of the men in our life. So when you, when you mix all of that, which is kind of this unsaid thing going on, and, and yeah. you have examples but there's this unsaid thing going on, then what happens is is people, men, historically just don't want to go and make sure that they're physically okay. Mm-hmm. They think they can handle it. They think that they can they can fix this per se. Um, that control is a good thing. And with eating disorders, as you probably know, control is actually the an- antithesis of a good thing. Right. Um, yeah. So so it can get rather confusing for guys. And it does present in different ways, of course. Yeah. So I know that it's typically spoken about, you know, women, you were saying, have this ideal of being smaller and thinner. And maybe that presents more 
more women having, you know, anorexia or bulimia? Are we seeing men Mm -hmm. fall into those categories as frequently or are they more falling into a different type of eating disorder? So eating disorder is an eating disorder. Um, I want to make that clear. Right. There's no doubt that anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, avoided restrictive food intake disorder or a mixture of all of those or even other stuff like pica um, mm-hmm. or ruminating, chewing and spitting, things like that actually exists on on the kind of uh, baseline level. Yeah. But, w- but what we often will see is that because guys are focused a little differently, if you talk about wanting to be thin for the fear of being fat, Mm-hmm. A lot of guys just seemingly don't relate to that verbiage. Yeah. So it like if that's a diagnosis criteria, it doesn't make sense for them. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 it's if you look at things like the way we assess eating disorders, something called the EDEQ, mm-hmm. then a lot of those questions are very female centric. Like, do you fear fat? Number one. Yeah. Do you are you are you afraid your legs will get that bigger? Things like that. Um, and for guys, the presentation, although they may have lost a lot of weight for a somewhat fear of fat, often is not about staying fit. It's about being strong. Mm-hmm. So there ends up instead of let's say body dysmorphia, which you find in more females than males you find muscle dysmorphia. Right. And so that focus isn't about, I want to be thin, but I want to be strong and lean and fit. Right, yeah, this um, almost more focus on the athletic side. Absolutely. And because of the push for athleticism, currently in everything, um, we're seeing it more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also, you know, really dealing with a sense here that if you look at the element of control, if a guy is controlling his food in order to um, have his body look a certain way, well, how much is he exercising? Is he exercising two hours a day, seven days a week? Yeah. Is he using, you know, is he, does that have to be purging, of course, or is he using laxatives? Is he using creatine or human growth hormone, which actually is a thing people do? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, those protein shakes, binging on protein is a real thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I see it all the time. <laughs> exactly. I have problems going to the gym. My wife gets so upset with me. She goes, Brian, go to the gym. And I said, <laughs> I can't. If I go, I have to pass my heart out. And I know that's like a gross generalization, but I, I it, it's like, oh my God, I, I don't think I could be in the room when all I'm doing is thinking about how these guys are behaving. It, it yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, interesting to bring up and so, sort of something I wanted to talk about because it is seen as very normal to, um, you know, drink supplements if you're someone who works out Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they're even like being pushed on younger and younger athletes and um how does that you know play into someone developing disordered eating behaviors or um what what could be wrong with having so many of those supplements yeah uh well there's medical complications yeah (laughs) yeah uh there's no doubt that there's a there's an experience here where you can't really hurt your kidneys 
and or your liver and your mm-hmm. heart with the amount of work and push and exercise. Um, but there's also this part of it where by indulging in all of that stuff, you start to also find there's an obsessive tendency. Oh, yeah. And when that obs- yeah. When that, yeah. And when that obsession starts to show up and you can't seemingly break it or find other ways to connect with people in your life or the work you do or just find ways that are, let's say, joyous movements versus the movement of enhancing a body, mm-hmm. then there, there comes a little bit of an edge to that that could fall prey. And, you know, that you can really put a, a, let's just say, a facade up of a healthy body and of a body that's okay. And unfortunately, even doctors will look at a guy who is physically fit like that and say, you look great. There's nothing to worry about. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're you're taking care of yourself, you're working out, your body is okay, your weight is fine, you're healthy, all these things. But they'll never actually look at how fast did someone lose weight in order to build the muscle Mm -hmm. or how much how much anxiety if the person had stopped that obsession would they be able to function in their daily lives would right. people change value yeah it's interesting you so, brought up the doctor questions because I hear from people all the time and even like my husband went to the doctor recently and they just say like oh are you working out and if you say yes they're like okay great you're like you're healthy you know like they don't they don't probe <laughs> anymore <laughs> yeah yeah God, that's like a whole podcast in another. I know, you know, I know. <laughs> there, there is this part of it where doctors, and you can't blame them. No, the way our medical kind of system has worked is doctor visits, as we all know, are much shortened. They are no longer half hour to even hour long visits. You'd be lucky to have that. There's, there is this kind of medical standard that doctors are looking at, they are very quantifiable. So they mm-hmm. are looking at someone's, let's say, emotional state all the time unless you bring it up. They aren't asking you really about the, the differences in how you're sleeping and working out and eating and are you rigid with your food or are you too rigid with your movement. They don't, stuff that they don't care. They kind of don't look into it because it might open a can of work. Right, like that appointment might suddenly have to be 30 to 60 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and and there is this thing, in the, and I truly believe it, um, particularly around binge eating, but in general in our medical world, if you look at the ideologies and the research behind the health at every size uh, paradigm and mm-hmm. movement that's going on, there truly is medical stigma taking place. And medical stigma is a fascinating world. That if, that's, if one of our, your listeners is, is hearing this, they should look into it. Medical stigma comes from a place of having to have an ideal body, looking a specific way and presenting with all of your kind of numbers, blood labs, everything being perfect. And there's no room for to go left or right. Yeah. And really, and and anybody that comes in that is not within that 
immediately medical signal steps in and start taking control of the actual doctor. Mm-hmm. Doctors don't realize they're doing it or they're trapped by it. But if you look at, for example, the way I say to my patients and even the guys who are obsessed with their bodies needing to look a certain way or struggling with binge eating um, and wanting to lose weight, and we talk a lot about that there was a bunch of white guys that got together in the late 1800s who, you know, doctors back in the old days, they were kind of seen as the figureheads in the community. They were mm-hmm. practically gone. They did something everyone listened. And they all kind of got together one day and said, hey, you know what? Um, we need to find out what an ideal body is. And we have ideas of it, but we need to make Western medicine quantitative and science fact-based. So here are the requirements we would like for an ideal body. And they decided on it should look a certain way, it should have a specific BMI, which we all know BMI is not something to be trusted. Right. And then um, they all said, okay, so how are we going to be able to study these bodies? Well, we'll use cadavers, which are dead bodies. Mm-hmm. They're donated for science. And to this day, if you went and you looked up um, requirements, for being a cadaver, you will actually see that there is a requirement to be under a specific BMI. Wow. So if you think about that, you have to be under a BMI, the specific number, which we know BMI doesn't even matter anymore. And that body is actually being looked at to be perfect. How right. The kidneys, the organs, the lungs, the heart, everything. Anybody who has other problems, they often will look at that and say, well, that's because this person was overweight, so this person had a chronicity of heart disease because of something that happened to it. They'll find reasoning. Mm-hmm. But what we, have, what we have found is that we actually don't have bodies that are above that BMI that haven't truly been studied that don't get weight cycling. Weight cycling is diet. Mm-hmm. Someone going through the world. And as what we found is actually the disease doesn't come from, um, it doesn't come from being heavier. It actually, or lighter or whatever the body is, but it also comes more from the idea of dieting because the more your weight goes up and down and up and down, and the more you control it, yeah, the more disease and inflammation shows up, which causes all these problems. Right. Yeah. So less of, a problem with weight and more of a problem with constant change and manipulation. Yes. And so if you think about it for men, we live in a culture now where men have, forget about just having it under a specific BMI, but now we have Men's Health Magazine and GQ. Oh man, yeah, don't get me started. (laughs) And superheroes and everything else. And so these guys now whose bodies are probably fine uh-huh. are now saying, I'm not fine. They're causing more weight cycling. They're causing more control and rigidity. And they're not reporting it because they're being seen under the guise of medical stigma to be doing the right thing. Like, hey, are you going to the gym? You know, like your husband would have. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no other idea of, hey, this could be damaging if you do too yeah. much. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really interesting because um, there's so many companies now and uh, workplaces that are putting in, you know, wellness coordinators, wellness directors, wellness programs, like whatever it is. Um, 
and they <laughs> often really focus on on weight and they have you know biggest loser competitions or you know everyone's mm-hmm. on a diet together or whatever and uh often I see that, you know, the men tend to get into it far more than the women in in the workplace. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe because they feel like they're more successful or whatever is going on um, when they're trying to lose to lose that weight. And you see them, you know, drop a lot of weight really quickly and then gain it back really quickly. So that same cycle you're talking about. Absolutely. And, And, you know, one of the statements I always say to people who struggle with their with different sizes is, you know, there is uh, no union show for the biggest loser for a reason. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, on, on the spectrum of size and diversity in men, it's very hard to be able to feel capable because of this stigma. Because this medical stigma, this ideology of how you present yourself, actually now gets permeated as you see at work or in our commercials, or on Mm -hmm. TV, or everywhere else. And it becomes this almost unsaid, subconscious push to almost, I'm starting to see, I'm about to write a blog about something I call the religion of sin. Yeah. And very much this religious ideology that's unsaid, it's in our culture, that if you look a certain way, and medical stigma adds to this, and you are... Um, within that thin, privileged ideal, then you will be okay. You will be able to be free, optimistic, healthy, happy. The world is your oyster. Mm-hmm. And if you're not within, if you're not subscribing or prescribing to that religion of sin, then there's something wrong with you and you're devious and you yeah. don't feel right. And so, there's something wrong with your body. Go ahead. So how do you get men, you know, who who might not see that what they're doing is disordered or that they need help or they're reluctant to seek help? How do you get them into treatment and what does treatment look like? Okay. Good question. And a super hard question. Yeah. So, um, this is what I'm doing right now. Um, talking to people like you and trying to get people to see that men, there's an unsaid situation going on. A lot of times the problem we're facing with men particularly is that because two things, it wasn't until the DSM-5, which just came out a bunch of years ago. Like 2010 or something, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, it wasn't until then that men actually categorically were able to be diagnosed with diabetes. Yeah. So the reason being is, as you probably know, the criteria at the time was you had to lose your period. Right, yeah. so either every man has it or they don't have it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a problem. So that's changed, thank God. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and there's, there's parts of that that we can talk about quickly, um, and I'll get into that in a minute. But there's also this part of it that for anorexia particularly, you had to rec- be recognized as being at least 15% below your ideal body weight right. for it to be a kind of a diagnosable thing or at least a loss, a rapid loss over a, a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that men's bodies develop differently. Than and so what ends up happening is that men, particularly going through puberty and getting older, they typically on average have half the body fat of females. 
Right. So their rate is can can maybe not be as higher or even seen as much, right? So what happens is is that when a guy starts to lose weight, it's not as noticeable because they're already thin or possibly their body mass is a little different than a female preparing for puberty, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so there is nothing to be seen so that when a guy is losing 20 pounds, it's seen as a good thing. It's seen as, okay, he's just growing and he's getting good and we're going to go through... He plays too many sports, or he's going through a growth spurt eventually. He'll gain the weight one at a time. Mm-hmm. But for girls, I think we're just way more aware of it, much more concerned. Um, so, so that's kind of one of the big things. But getting a guy to come in often is when it's too late. Most of the guys, and this is when you work with guys, you have to really know this. Mm-hmm. Most of the guys walking in the door asking for help are in crisis. Yeah, yeah. But... They're, they're at a point where their lives are controlled by all of this. Mm-hmm. They're unable to work, focus. They're unable to be with their family. They're constantly thinking about food. Most times their doctors don't get it. They're GI issues. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Things. And the GI docs don't often get it either. And it's not their fault, but they're not really looking for eating disorders. They're trying to find something wrong with the GI tract. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. So there's this, this experience where it's just not known. Guys come to something's wrong later, typically, because of that almost masculinity ideal where they're ignoring and not wanting to pay as much attention. Um, and it's just a perfect storm. And so when people are calling me, the guy's already lost 50 pounds in the past six months. Mm-hmm. Or, he's, or he's, he's, he's binging and purging three times a day. Um, and really hurting his esophagus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with guys, we have a very limited amount of time to do the work because if it continues and can't be stabilized and then turns to a better, more amicable living place, then um, they do have to go to a higher level of care, which is another issue because there aren't many places that serve men suffer. Right, yeah. Something I think about a lot with, I, I work with, mostly adolescents and I do see like adolescent um, boys quite a bit and I um, don't know where to send them you know if they have to go to residential because so many places are are only women yes yes and, and even many of the residentials it, it they will say they take guys but do they really focus in on guys do they, right. really do they know how to treat them yeah there's a conversation piece there for guys that's a little bit different um so yeah, there's no doubt. And then the other ways we're doing it is I'm starting that men in mental health show. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. speaking. I, I was just asked to speak um, at a very, uh, I'm pretty excited, at a very large eating disorder conference um, in September. I haven't signed the paper, so I can't say the name yet, but um, <laughs> That's okay. I'm very excited about that. They asked me to be the keynote speaker about men in mental health, um, men in eating disorders. Um, there is all kinds of things that we're trying to do. It takes time, but there's no one I really know on a daily push trying to get the word out and the support. We're just kind of waiting for people to just call. And mm-hmm. I don't think that works. I just don't think it's going to do it. Right. Um, Especially when so many of the people who probably do have a problem or need help, like don't even know they have that issue. Yeah. 
Exactly. And so the awareness of going into, if it's even possible, prevention programs, community awareness programs, you know, there's only so much one person can do. So that's why we're trying to build a group so that we can have more and more advocacy out there, which mm-hmm. gives us more time and more more uh, man and woman power to be able to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's very tough to to be able to get guys to see and, and you know, see there's a problem, number one. Number two, be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then number three, find a way to recognize that they can become stronger in their lives in a different way that isn't so focused on what they are almost culturally bound to prove. Um, so it can be, it, it is, you're jumping through hoops. Yeah. And I'm not even talking, and right now I'm not even mentioning the whole other universe um, when it comes to gender and role conflict and the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a whole other subject that, you know, there are, stereotypes within that community or those communities where you find a role of how you present your body and decide to maintain that role in order to have a place and a meaning and a way to communicate who you are Mm -hmm. and connect, connect emotionally and sexually and community-wise. And if you don't fulfill those roles, people can't understand who you are and what you're doing there. So you have to almost decide and then maintain that, which is that pressure alone for, for guys. It's insane. Who are, yeah. Yeah. It, it, how do you do that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to give advice to maybe a family member or people supporting someone um, who they might think has a problem or does know they have a problem, what would you say? <sighs> I would probably just say to them it's going to be okay. That there's the possibility of working through this and coming out on the other side a more resistant, a more communicative, and even a better person at the end of the day. And what I mean by better person isn't that they are bad now, but their ability to emulate that great side of them that they're trying to emulate already mm-hmm. can, shine, can shine through more um, because the eating disorder really isn't their choice. It is a safety and control mechanism. It's a survival technique. And so we once we can work through that stuff, whether they can reach out to the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders or NIDA or a therapist in their area or us or a trusted loved one or a support group or just find stuff online like podcasts like mm-hmm. this one or for YouTube channels of interviews which we're trying to do or other just information. We do live in a world of information seek out the professionals doing this work and have a real conversation. But at the end of the day, it's completely possible to get through this. And it's completely resolved. I do believe you can resolve an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Recovery is absolutely possible. And healing 
which I think actually happened after recovery. Yeah, definitely. It's very much possible as well. Great. Well, if my listeners want to find you, where where should they go? Um, The best place is to go to hilltopbehavioralhealth.com. That's where our group practice website is, and... um, That'll be where most of our information is as we are moving and grooving. We also, we don't have it yet. There will be um, information about where also to find us online. We do have a, I have my own Twitter feed. It's okay. Um, it's <laughs> Brian Pollock, LCSW, LLC. You just have to search me out there. We're starting an Instagram feed because we're realizing that is unfortunately right now yeah we need to send some good vibes out there in in the instagram world um so we're around okay you can find us online awesome yeah. and so i like to ask every guest uh the same question at the end just uh to end on a positive note when it comes to food so what is your favorite food brian oh man oh <laughs> man really i have to pick one uh, <laughs> you pick a food so, group. I don't know. <laughs> well, two times to mind. One is pizza. I will. What type of pizza? I love. I love. Um, I, so uh, plain. It, it, Just cheese. From northern northern New Jersey. There's a fight between New York, northern New Jersey, Connecticut pizza. Yeah, I'm from um, Connecticut. Well, I live in Connecticut now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I can't. I can't deal with Connecticut pizza. Like you guys. <laughs> but I. I, I can say that um, I, the way I understand pizza particularly is uh, a plain slice. I know the quality from a plain slice. Okay. okay. So, yeah. And then the other one would be corn on the cob. Oh, that's um, good. No one said that before. That's a good one. Oh, come. Have you ever had Jersey corn? You can't go. It's the sweetest, best corn in the world. Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, it's good. Um, yeah. yeah, but none, none of my guests have said corn on the cob, so that's awesome. <laughs> Um, well thanks so much Brian for coming on I learned a lot and I think this will be really great um, for my listeners because we haven't had a show about men yet Uh, well I appreciate it and if you ever want to get more specific about certain issues we brought up anytime happy to talk awesome thank you so much and have a great rest of your week you too take care if you made it this far, please take a moment to rate and review my show. Um, just go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening and read it. That's, you know, four or five stars, something like that, um, if you like it. And please write a review. That really helps other people find my show. Um, and we're always trying to expand who's listening. So um, I hope you enjoyed this week's bonus episode. And I'll see you back here next week for Nita Week. Uh, Have a wonderful day.